Excellent timing, sir. I just sat down myself. Fantastic. That's how we like to do things. Oh, okay. In sync. Not the boy band. <laughs> I have nothing against them. Just, I mean different things. Anyway, at the first sip of the coffee, it begins. The following discussions are a further look into director Thomas W. Arlington and the tumultuous events of the final year of the Grant administration. This won't be an easy road to walk down, but I have faith that we will be stronger for following it to its conclusion. Through the wind door. Proceeding on into what remains of the story, as I wrote down earlier, much of the rest of the chapter speaks for itself. It speaks of the before and some of the after of the Steamheart expedition. And by after, I mean events that happened back in D.C. while Steamheart goes on. Because we don't actually find out what happened with the Steamheart expedition. Mm -hmm. That's its own book, as mentioned earlier. But we read of the final moments between Sarah and Thomas and of her reminding Thomas of one of Douglas's most famous quotes. It's a great quote. I've seen it elsewhere prior to this moment. But like you said, power concedes nothing without demand. Frederick Douglas said that. I know. But you carry it on well. And then we are brought to the precipice of Thomas's great speech, and we finally see the downfall. Not brought about by our antagonist, but by an unseen shooter. Even as he speaks truth to the crowd, someone responds by cutting him down, like so many other great black leaders have had done to them. And though this is not a fall that the Arlingtons deserve, their actions have brought this about nonetheless. So here is where I finally ask for the last time what is the hamartia of both of them together that has led them to this and let me point out that this is not to lay blame as is the case in some tragedies where it seems clear that the protagonist has done something bad and therefore this end is deserved it's only to say this is the outcome of the choices that Thomas and Sarah have made. It puts the story into sharp relief when that inciting warning that this would be the story about the days before Arlington died turns out to not have been foreshadowing a hypothetical dramatic assassination by Seth and Brayoth on the roof of the Capitol building, which was absolutely something that the scene is written with that in mind to add to the tension but it was instead referring to the despairingly familiar scenario of great black leaders being killed for doing nothing more than speaking. Mm. It's not the ominous cloud of savage new fantastical monsters that the opening prologue with Annie introduced that would lead to this moment. It was always just people. 
it, it was never you, it was always them. Once mm-hmm. more, those words coming back to us. As for the Hamasha of Thomas and Sarah, both as individuals and collectively as a pairing, where do we begin? Perhaps with Thomas's own semi-joking, yet nevertheless astute self-assessment that he has a need for control and a burning dissatisfaction with the current state of humanity. It's unlikely that Thomas's words on the day were what directly led to his death. The way the assassination appeared to play out, it just seemed too coordinated and planned for it to be a flash of anger and a spur-of-the-moment killing from an undecided collection of killers who attended the address with weapons but were just waiting to see what he had to say before acting, that it doesn't seem like that would be the case. But, and this is a key detail of this tragic end, the specific motivation behind the assassination of the Arlingtons is never revealed. When Raven surmises the collection of reasons and suspects of who could have orchestrated it, whether from racial hatred to political intentions from someone like Tremaine, thematically, from a storytelling point of view, it essentially comes down to it being for all of those reasons that the Arlingtons were killed. They were doing so much, affecting so much, and all that attention meant that their collection of enemies was too broad and too uncertain for the men who pulled the triggers to be passed out from the crowd. As such, the first main point of Hamasha, and in most of these cases, I don't think these are inherent flaws or amoral qualities, just characteristics that led to this moment, is that their ambitions outstretched what the social structures around them would permit to progressive individuals, and a black man and woman especially. For Thomas to get back to that point about his need for control, that's what pushes him to be in this situation where he gets shot. He has to speak. He has to entreat the American public to reform and be better. And he has to make a public statement about what the road ahead has to be because his own drive won't let him not have a hand on civilization's steering wheel. When faced with Seth's challenge of being the best of men or be no man at all, Thomas steps out and talks because he has to take control in order to make that happen. And that active involvement in America's future is what ends up getting him shot. As for Sarah, the final moments of the Arlingtons reveal that she wasn't wearing her armoured jacket while Thomas was. The implications of that are that she trusted people's better natures too much. She literally opened her heart to the people and it ended up getting shot. I won't speculate too much on her reasoning as there is a moment in Steamheart where some time is spent going over Sarah's reasoning for this particular decision. So we'll have time to talk about it there. But for now, Sarah Arlington's Hamasha is believing so much in the necessity to trust that she puts her life on the line to stand by that conviction. But then again, Thomas didn't trust people, and he did wear his armour, but it evidently wasn't enough. So the unanswered question that we're left 
asking ourselves is whether the Arlingtons would have avoided this scenario altogether if they had exercised more trust to the American public during their careers, like Sarah, or less trust, like Thomas. Whatever the case, this is the series of decisions and circumstances that we are living in in this reality. And it is definitively a tragedy. I think to a certain extent, you might have hit directly on it earlier. I feel like there's a quote that's tickling at the edge of my senses that I'm going to have to go back and find when I do the edit of this episode that might be able to express this better than I can with my own clumsy words. Obviously, people already know my favorite quote in regards to change or the lack thereof. And unfortunately, whatever quote I was thinking of remains forgotten. But I did find a relevant quote to our next words from none other than Niccolò Machiavelli himself. There is nothing more difficult to take in hand, more perilous to conduct, or more uncertain in its success than to take the lead in the introduction of a new order of things. But in some ways their downfall may simply have come from the fact that they wanted to change the world at all, and that the world will only let itself be changed so much, particularly Mm. when it comes from the mouth of someone trying to tell people that this is for your own good and is not simply from a selfish perspective. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And uh, you, you specifically pointed out at a different part of your notes mm-hmm. that Thomas uses the line during his speech. When we are sick, we take medicine. It tastes bad, and we make a face, but we swallow it. And if we're lucky, we get better. If we refuse the medicine and push on blindly through our sickness, And it can only intensify. That hits different now, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Mm. Like, I'm not going to take your fucking medicine. I don't believe you. You're trying to poison me or whatever is unfortunately a perspective that has been voiced again and again now in Mm. 2021. Mm. And that idea can be applied not just to COVID, but it can be applied to I want my gas-guzzling SUV. I want to use whatever power I want for whatever. I want my NFTs. I want to waste all of this electricity so I can have this status symbol that isn't actually worth shit. You know, it's stupid, and it's frustrating, and Mm. it drives empathetic people like us nuts that humanity can be so obstinate that mm. people can do things will will cut off their noses to spite their faces just mm. so that they can own the libs so yeah. to speak i do want to add that in saying all this i'm not putting it all on the average american or even the average human i blame the would-be leaders both official and not for stirring this sort of sentiment up for normalizing it for making others believe it's okay to make these toxic ideas a part of their self-identity. 
There are people that do it because they believe every word. There are people that do it to attain money and fame and power. There are people that do it to destabilize other countries. And there are people that do it just for the lulls, as they say. But there is no valid distinction between these people when the thing they are espousing destroys lives, societies, and ecosystems. The end result is the same. The more frustrating thing is that the average person can be so easily convinced by the right person, but given that first-world societies were always built on the toxic foundation of empire and colonization, it's not hard to see why they have an intrinsic value of privilege that they want to hold on to. And that's what these fascistic mouthpieces prey on. Whether the assassination of Thomas and Sarah was planned or not, people like Fisher, Roach, Van Tassel, Tremaine, and even McPherson lit the fuse. Or, maybe more accurately, blew on the ashes of smoldering resentment, now that there were some that felt safe enough to dissent, rather than follow the example of Grant's administration, who had managed some semblance of success, and could have gone on to succeed further, had someone not decided to act on fear and hate. To claim what happened is somehow Thomas and Sarah's fault is on the face of it ridiculous. Mm. But the point is, is that they were trying to do something good. And as a different aphorism goes, Well, at the end of the day, we're likely to be punished for our kindnesses. Bad things happen regardless of the fact that it was the right thing to do. Mm. People are selfish. People are stupid. People will act against their own best interests. We have seen this mm. again and again because their anger is more important than their well-being. It just so happened that I was also re-listening to the Arrival podcast recently, and the behavior of people acting counter to their own best interests came up there when discussing privilege and a mindset that is adversarial, a zero-sum game. Because it's a masterful bit of dialogue between Alex and Sharon, I include a piece of it here. Trying to communicate with, with people whose fundamental understanding of their rights is that they be allowed to carry firearms, it's so difficult to express to people who think solely in those terms that what's fundamentally wrong with that being your representation of you getting the things that you are entitled to because that means everybody around you has to live in fear but their response to that would be well why don't they all have their own guns too oh my god you're making it worse again it's, it's also how would that diminish in... your fear well exactly it doesn't and that's the point but that's what i mean the the difference in in language and in perception and the issues that we've had in this country with the the idea that people are so behind this concept that we must leave the eu fundamentally when people have tried to argue that there are reasons why it's of benefit, so why is it such a big deal for you that we must leave? It's the fundamental, I won't be told what to do. It doesn't matter if what I'm being told to do is good for me, I won't be told what to do. And again, it's that how do you communicate? How do you have those debates? How do you have those discussions when fundamentally the two sides are discussing 
different things. They don't have a commonality of, of point. There is nowhere that they can meet in the middle, or at least if there is, we haven't found it because the two sides are so built around but we must win and if we win then that means that you must lose and then the other side's like but this isn't about a win-lose thing we're trying to make sure that everyone gets as close as possible to a win state exactly and that's why I love this film so much (laughs) in the movie Arrival there are individuals that lash out in fear and anger there as well not against members of a previously subjugated race but against an alien species that they think will possibly treat them the way they have treated so many other races they thought of as lesser. But in that case, we don't even think about the quote-unquote fatal flaw of the alien race, because they have done nothing other than try to communicate, and it is only due to the preconceived notions of some humans that violence occurs. If the most sort of reductive but like to the heart summary of the classic tragedy is that a character or a protagonist's tragic undoing or fate is just the result of their own character that we get to know over the course of their story then this is a sick twisted dose of reality where this is Two people who have the best of intentions and do so much going up to show their character to the crowd. The entire point of this is to be open to introduce themselves Mm -hmm. and to establish their character. And that is the thing that gets them killed. Mm. That is the most elemental version of a tragedy that... It is the result of our own personalities and things that define us, that drive us to the most tragic of destinations. And what's fucked up here is that it wasn't that like they were misguided. It was that they just were facing such an uphill battle that trying to get anywhere at all was the first mistake something you wrote the final point of the speech is the importance of coming together the final outcome shows what seth earlier alluded to was that they are not together and Mm. never have been and that stabs at the heart of the audience as much as it takes the life of our heroes this is why when i was re-listening to this the whole bit when I was out, because I usually listen to this when I go out for my runs, and the entire duration of their Sarah and Thomas's speeches, I was almost having like an anxiety attack. My like heart was in my throat because mm. even though I, or not even though, because I knew what was coming, it just meant every word was precious, and this feeling of oh god oh god all of that you know what's coming yeah and 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 nothing that thomas said caused things to happen differently even if it was true even Mm. if it was him making himself vulnerable is trying so hard he gets up there and you can hear from the very first sentence that this is so hard 
and he says he goes back on his word and he just says i'm not going to lie to you he is bearing himself his soul more than he ever has in his life in treating the this population doing everything he can and the people who kill him demonstrate categorically they don't that care. is that is no, not just that that is words here never mattered because they had already made up their minds mm -hmm. they had already decided on this plan his words like didn't to them, trigger anything they, his words like it wasn't a case of him failing the test it was the fact that he was a, never a participant in this test when toby originally dropped this bombshell the silence stretched out like a knife i had nothing to say in response to the simple truth of a group of people that refused to see thomas and sarah as equal as human, even after their words. But it's here that I also insert a separate thought in response to Sarah's musings on giving the speech to begin with, on whether or not her desire to be known, for her husband to be known, was in some way part of Hamartia. This is once more a difficult thing to consider, if you think back to my brief stumble on the idea of Sarah naming herself as an expression of pride and self-worth, and whether that was wrong or not. But the simple truth is that asking others to see us as people is the bare minimum we should ask for. Not that any of us are better, but merely that we are worth the consideration of discourse and rights and empathy at all. Sarah wasn't wrong in desiring to be known, and the very fact that she was worried that it would change her shows that she was already aware of the possibility of stepping forward going to her head. One who is self-aware is far less likely to give in to human weakness, especially when we tend to know our own weaknesses very well. These days, though, the kinds of people that would have killed Thomas and Sarah won't even give basic equivalency to anyone that doesn't think exactly as they do. Discourse is weaponized, and empathy is denied even to those that look like them. I don't have answers for any of this. And even if I did, this podcast isn't the place for that discussion. So for now, let's return to the world of the fictional, and our remaining thoughts on these final chapters. I'm not sure. I... <laughs> Once more, we get to one of those points where it's like I, after that pronouncement, I was like, okay, let's move on mm -hmm. to what happens next because I I just don't want to talk about it anymore. Yeah. Obviously, we will talk more about it in the larger oh, yeah. sense when we do our final discussion on Arlington, but mm -hmm. let's move on to the events yeah. of chapter 25. Yeah. Finally, the aftermath is laid out by Raven. The chapter itself is called aftermath mm -hmm. and discussing how the death of the Arlingtons did not actually change much in the way of things. And what I mean by that is that their deaths did not sway public opinion one way or another. Those that loved and respected them continued to do so and tried to carry on the work, and those that did not, did not suddenly have a change of heart. But it puts into focus some of those preparations that were alluded to and laid out in the previous chapter, including the new dark force, masked and armored, 
seemingly taking retribution for the deaths of the Arlingtons and removing some of those earlier instigators from the playing field. Even as Truth and Catherine take up the mantle of the fallen, this masked figure called Mr. White carries out deeds that we may approve of and yet are no less dark and worrisome. We see that he is no mere new player inhabiting the vacuum left behind by those we care about and those we hate, but that he works hand in hand with Silent Company, the group Thomas forged to be unanswerable to anyone. A healthy democracy should have no need of a secret police. But in this world, as in our own, how can we say that the democracy is indeed healthy? And even if it is not, does that make it a good thing? Damn, I don't know if I can end this any better than that. The final note of Arlington is a melancholy one, though not entirely hopeless, and certainly not marred in a feeling of powerless despondency. There is hate and cruelty and callous attitudes in the wake of the tragedy of losing the Arlingtons. That is just the heartbreaking reality of things. But there is also resolve to keep working for what the Arlingtons did strive for, and the feeling that there is a significant enough level of support for who they were and what they were trying to accomplish to generate hope. And intermingled with that healthy version of hope in the face of adversity, there is something else, as embodied by White, a more visceral and immediate response to the ugliness of the world that strikes decisively to right the scales that have been set so askew. And that is a concerning blend of gratifying catharsis that evil men are punished, mixed with an uneasy knowledge that this cannot be a healthy response in the long term. White comes onto the scene fully formed. The moment we see him come in and just cut off hands and taking names and kicking ass and chewing bubblegum, he just is exactly who he presents himself to be just like the mask is my face that is something chilling exciting and that maybe provides us with a certain degree of comfort that someone this capable is carrying on the arlington's work in some way because he talks about them in that final narration mm -hmm. but at the same time, there is that undeniable concern that, as Raven says, white should not exist and only does because the Arlingtons are no longer with us. The feelings that I had when I initially heard the audio drama version of this chapter, they were very much revisited on this most recent listen through as I was pondering the final moments of this story. There is an, a way that the bigots and the white supremacists are depicted during that initial encounter with Steelborn, wherein these are just stereotypical assholes talking about they took our germs, where that line is they actually took our used. Germs. It is actually used in the story 
in order to be like, yeah, these are almost comedically inept assholes and they deserve being mowed down like the cowardly killers they actually are. We must be vigilant, my brothers. The niggers may be gone from their stolen government positions. They may be gone from the earth, but more coons lurk in the gutters of this city, crawling up through the drains to take the white man's rifled property, his food, his wife, his job. They took our jobs. They took our jobs. And we must never again allow a goddamn porch monkey to. What the hell is that? Reports of there being a steamcraft present, of even larger size than the one sighted during the Washington riots, bristling with weaponry and laying waste to fleeing, chinless white supremacists, are of course entirely unfounded. And yet, at the same time, even as we want to see Roach brought to heel, as we want to see Fisher, his smug certainty and his evil cruelty be dealt with, we even see the final moments of Van Tassel, though it was with little fanfare, and I almost forgot he even had that, because the novel only devotes a couple of sentences to it, where the audio drama expands on it the same way it expanded on the attack of Steelborn. Still during those interactions that we see with White, we still feel like, should we be enjoying this? Mm. that's the thing is that there is the uncertainty that you spoke of and that I spoke of where white is ostensibly on the side of the angels and yet he frightens us we don't really know that we like him just because he is giving the richly deserved comeuppance mm -hmm. to these hateful people he is the arbiter of what I think Thomas may have been referring to when he talked about the feelings he experienced when he brutally, just sort of putting his thumbs through someone's eyes, killed. Mm. I forget which of the two men it was that he personally killed, but he described it as terrible, cathartic justice. Mm. That is what Mr. White is. He is terrible cathartic justice in theory there are moderating forces in that we can't expect truth or catherine to be doing these things mm. but the point is is that they can't hold mr white back and obviously we'll talk more about that later on as mm. mr white's role continues to expand into the rest of new century but the point is that they're not there and he is. He's still able to do these horrible things and no one else is coming in. No, 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 wait, I didn't authorize this. No, they, they are carried out, particularly with the it, water torture thing that happens with Roach. Mm -hmm. It sounds terrifying. The way this is all acted out, we believe that this is a horrible experience that is go that is taking that we are bearing witness to yeah the, even when it's heroes we don't actually like seeing heroes torture people torture is one of those uh directed devices that if you're working with someone who like 
knows what they're doing as a writer rather than someone who's like yeah fucking like don't you love this catharsis like yeah frank miller is someone who can have his heroes torture characters and like in theory yeah i've seen what was it that thing that comic that he put out holy terror holy terror yes and obviously i'm i never actually read the comic myself i saw somebody else reviewing it specifically linkara and the way linkara frames all of that and voices his two cents yeah i don't particularly like the fixer in that comic either even where there are actual terrorist forces out there that do horrible things mm. i don't feel like the fixer is the person to meet those mm. opposing forces yes. he is just as ugly as those mm. he purport to protect us from and let's be clear here mr white is no fixer as a like he is far removed and like yeah. there is something about mr white that is strangely amiable and endearing and just like he is someone who sounds just completely liberated and will just be like why is it i wonder that people only seem to talk about god when they're trying to get their own way about to come or about to die you're you're absolutely right that in in certain in different circumstances or maybe even in these kinds of circumstances we appreciate a good quip a, a way that mm. words flow off the tongue that we'd be like, we can, might be able to get some catharsis out of this moment. Mm. But all, all I can say is that, yeah, this is the strength of those moments, is that it leaves us with seriously mixed feelings. Not that we are completely against Mr. White, that we kind of like him and hate him at the same time. Mm. You're sort of like, I'm not sure how to feel about this. Is the situation mm. better? Is it worse? Is it both? Like, this is the thing, is that, and I think it's just kind of demonstrated by the idea that, like, he comes in, he kills uh, Fisher, and I love the detail that Raven puts in his report that, yes, uh, accounts do confirm that he crapped his pants as he died. <laughs> yeah. And it's the sort of thing that it's like, you know, Raven is has shown that he is a good journalist that is able to report the facts. And I think that if his editor is like, like, Raven, what are you doing? It's like, I'm just reporting the facts. I'm not biased at all. I'm just reporting the facts. I got this testimony, so I decided to like share it. I mean, just... yeah, this, this is meant to be Raven's particular style of journalism. And... Mm. We, again, we see some of the comparison to the influences of Spider-Jerusalem, who, of course, mm. was very interested in uh, scatological humor, as well as <laughs> other stuff along those lines. So yeah, yeah. everything with the way that White will take him out and isn't there to be like, OK, you're done with this criminal ring. It's all right, Joe. I think it's Joe. He just yeah. sort of like, all right, Joe's in charge here. Don't get any ideas like you. We like Joe. We're having him work the things out here. And it's just like, uh, okay, I guess that's still happening. Even if White is taking assholes like Roach and Fisher off the table, there is something about his presence that doesn't necessarily fill us with ease. It's mm -hmm. just like, 
Okay. Well, I guess this weight is looming over us. Mm -hmm. During our original conversation, we skipped over the presence of torture in the narrative, and I want to briefly circle back to that, because it's part of the reason we brought up Holy Terror as an example. The second White opens that box named Torture, it's like opening Pandora's box. The box that the Durgish Shaman spoke of. It's an act that poisons the soul and sets you on a path that is hard to come back from. I do encourage people to see Linkara's three-part series on Holy Terror, as he explains far better than I could what sickens him about the message of that book. But here is a relevant part of a speech from part two that I find important in this moment. I sometimes get asked why Camelot, of all films, is my favorite movie. And the reason is because it actually changed my life, or at least focused my beliefs into something that was you know, a good, solid foundation for a personal philosophy. Uh... Those who have power should use it to do good. Uh, that violence is not strength. Compassion is not weakness. That revenge is utterly pointless. Superheroes are basically the equivalent of modern-day knight-errants. They go out and help people and fight injustices. But a lot of the best superhero comics are the ones not actually about superheroes hitting supervillains or hitting each other or anything like that. It's the ones that show that superheroes are about kindness and decency and something far more noble than the adolescent power fantasies that people often, you know, critique them as. I think I hate this comic more than any other I've ever reviewed because it is the complete antithesis of everything I believe in. Holy Terror says that you should be unkind. It says you shouldn't trust people. It says compassion will be repaid with violence and that violence can only be answered with more violence and that violence is strength. That hurting others is not only enjoyable and desirable, but that it should be employed first when dealing with threats. Now, having listened to all of that, let me go on to say that I don't necessarily think that killing is itself wrong. I don't have a hard and fast rule for it, and have to live with the idea that you have to judge these things on a case-by-case -case basis. But I do know how... Alex feels about it, and honestly, so should most of the readers, considering how much we've talked about it. So the fact that Mr. White carries out assassinations should already be a very deliberate sign that this is a person we should be worried about. And just in case we have mixed feelings about the idea that maybe these are people that needed to be removed before they could do further harm, White takes it a step further and tortures Roach using a similar form of torture as the one made popular in the Bush era. We should find White's actions troubling, is what the book says to us. And it will only get worse from here. Also, the significance of his name, mm. it's, there's an intriguing play there, because there? The, the White is 
I mean, I, honestly, I only know what the white is thanks to Dungeons and Dragons, in that it's an, an advanced form of undead that, uh, you know, has elements of that it drains the life from its victims and, mm. you know, is it more intelligent than your average skeleton or zombie or ghoul or anything like that. But also the fact that, you know, white is in the color white, you know. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Like, is he the enemy that our opponents deserve, that he presents himself as being like them? Something I wonder about, but do not have an answer for, is the way the armor was decorated. Sure, white armor to go with the name, and a red, white, and blue face mask with a star to symbolize the American flag. But the red stripes on the front of the armor, I presume, mean something, and I have yet to decipher what. That artwork is fantastic. By the way, I urge you listeners, if you haven't seen it, to try and find, or just like hit me with a message. I'll get you the artwork of Mr. White. It's very cool. Um, and at w one point, and uh, Greg, you can edit this if this is giving too much away, but at one point, I think it's confirmed that the name of his armor is like Scorpion Suit or something mm. like that. Mm -hmm. And to me, I get the feeling that this is a little nod to Mortal Kombat uh, because I oh. think you can make the argument that Mr. White somewhat resembles Scorpion from Mortal Kombat. Am I saying that at one point I'd like to see Mr. White say, get over here? Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Alternatively, given that Brayoth was at one point referred to as a scorpion lion and had thick armor of his own, it may be that the name of the armor was an in-universe reference to the manticore. But there's no reason both explanations can't be true. Well, there's more to discuss at this point, but I think that's where we're going to put a pin in it for now. As far mm -hmm. as Mr. White, as far as Seth, as far as Arlington in general, we've been talking a long time and I need to refill my engine, so to speak, as we figure mm. out what our final words on the subject is going to be. Mm. So for now, once more, Tubby, thank you for all of your contributions, both beforehand and during recording. Thank you, Greg. This has been one of my favorite sessions, but then so many of that, my sessions are one of my favorite sessions. Yeah, your favorite session is the one that we just did. <laughs> That's absolutely the case. That is 100% accurate. So, and... well done, Greg. We've broken a record. New, like, favorite session. Mm -hmm. Look forward to the next one. Yeah, absolutely. And in the meantime, we'll see all of you on our next trip through the wind door. Take care. This episode filled out nicely, and on top of that, it's prompted more stuff to talk about during our final conversation on the novel Arlington. To close us out, a song I've been holding on to a while. It has a poetic quality to it with imagery that should make quite obvious why I associate parts of it with New Century. But more importantly, the artist wrote it in response to his father dying, adding additional symbolism to the reason I chose this song. Until next time, this is Sting with All This Time.
There are three things I specialize in, Greg. My own studies in stop-motion animation, New Century, and my wife's PhD. Yeah. These are my three specialties. Big well, thumbs wait. up for my wife. So what's, what's going to happen as soon as your wife's thesis is done and you don't need to study for it anymore? Is there, is there going to be something that fills the vacuum, or are you just going to focus all the harder on your work and our work? <laughs> a little bit of that, and a little bit of probably just a extended period of celebrations and drunken disorder. Mm -hmm. That's that's recorded. That's fine. That's fine for that to be out there. But if you're in for if you're looking for a good time. Uh, <laughs> You know, I'm not going to finish that sentence. Like, no matter how, like, where the rest of it goes, like, just, you know, enjoy that sound clip. Use it for your own pleasure. Just don't I mean, tell me about it. No, well, not. I, I was just thinking of us, like, now that you've said that sentence, anything you could say after that would only be a disappointment. The theater mm. of the mind works much better for what we ever imagined you would say after that. Mm. <laughs> So I'll just let your filthy, filthy imaginations take you where you want to go, listeners. Also, I think that I think that your facial hair is really doing it for me. No. <laughs> Greg, I'm a married man. <laughs> Fantastic. I I am a baby-faced man. I tend to favor that uh, in general. And just growing up, 
facial hair gets scratchy, you know, so yes. I don't do it often, but every now and then I'll do it for a laugh. And uh, one point it was like that no shave November thing. And I decided, you know what? I haven't actually seen as an adult man what I look like if I don't shave for a month. Let's just as a point of interest, see what that is. And it wasn't bad. It didn't look a hundred miles off like what I know my brother looks like when he grows his beard out a bit. But uh, yes, we shall see. I'll probably post a picture of it like at one point and I will just be like, okay, everyone just like be as cruel as you want and tell me who like which fictional character I remind you of. So hop onto the Discord if you want to join in on that fun. <laughs> no, I when I was in my 20s, Mm-hmm. I was also in the middle of like losing my hair um, at an early stage, uh, but it was it, it took a while before it got to this point. It was just like thinning and thinning and thinning and and just getting more and more 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 face, so to speak, mm. in the process. But I also would be like I was experimenting with facial hair, mm-hmm. and my face is such that I can actually grow in a very good full beard, mm-hmm. but. I didn't want the the issue of like doing the full beard, so I was like, okay, I'll get a trimmer, and mm. I'll just do just do the goatee thing, and that yeah. actually looked very nice on my face. The thing is, however, is that first of all, the itchiness, just like you said, yeah. But but even more than that, what I find is that when my hair grows long enough, and I like, okay, I'm gonna eat. Yep, I it's knew, not so much. I knew like, exactly where this was heading. <laughs> Well, see, there's not so much, like, food particles in the facial hair, although that can be a thing. Mm-hmm. It's more that when I'm chewing, I'm feeling my hair. Ah, uh, yeah. The, absolutely. And that's very distracting and kind of annoying. Mm-hmm. And it can be that bad even if I don't have a full beard going on. If just, like, the hair on my upper lip just gets long enough. Yeah. <laughs> it is remarkable that something that grows on your face can feel like barbed wire at times. Yeah. It's just a what why? Why does anyone do this ever? Like <laughs> Please note, Alex, this is not a commentary on your lovely beard. I it's I guess me and Toby are just not manly enough to put up with facial hair. I don't know. Moving on. To me, the best look that I ha- could possibly hope for with facial hair, and it's always like, if I can get to that, that's the ideal, is Return of the King, Viggo Mortensen. Like, <laughs> that's just, if if I could ever, like, have it of that level, that's peak facial hair for me. I'm down with it. Mm-hmm. I, I expect you would be. The first Trevor we cover. The first Trevor we cover? (laughs) Sarah's words in her last narrated section as she reflects on sex and the clarity and perspective. um, uh, Someone's engines are being revved outside. uh, Like, not a euphemism, despite the subject of conversation. Um, Yeah. 
shape of my heart. 